Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Sarah Churchwell from the School of Advanced Studies at the University of London. She's the author of the book The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells, which is a fascinating exploration of that famous film and uses that film as a lens to understand America's troubled present. Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much. So, Sarah, I said just before we started recording that I, I uh, read this book on my holidays and, and uh, its its rather startling cover and title gave me a few uh, sort of odd glances. Um, <laughs> but, but of course, we, we are in a very, very strange time uh, in America's political history. But what your book perhaps helps us to understand is that the crisis of democracy of 2022 is something that has its roots uh, deep in America's history. Perhaps you could say a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. And the motivating force or idea behind the book really was that, uh, especially looking at the insurrection of January 6th last year, and I am calling it an insurrection. There's an enormous amount of evidence that has been uncovered in the 18 months since then to show that it absolutely was an insurrection and an attempt to overthrow the democratic process. It was not a spontaneous riot. That insurrection, though, came as such a shock to not just to Americans, but to people all over the world. And the sense of just what is going on in America? What has happened here? And I think that the more that you know about particularly the history of the United States since the Civil War, the more you know about that, the less anomalous what's happening right now becomes. It doesn't become any less troubling, of course, and it doesn't become predetermined or anything like that, but it just becomes intelligible. It becomes something that you can make sense of. And so I wanted to try to tell that story. It's a huge story, obviously, 160 years of American history. But so I wanted to try to tell that story in a, in a slightly different way and to give people, if I could, a kind of handle on that interpretation to try to make sense of its deep roots in the American experience. And the way you've done that, which I, I, I found to be brilliant, is is through this sort of analytical framework, if you like, of Gone with the Wind. Uh, I suppose the first thing to say is that, particularly for some younger Brits who might listen to this, it might not be a very familiar film. So perhaps uh, give us sort of a, a half minute account of what Gone with the Wind is about. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think you're right. It's it you know, it was once this incredibly dominant story that everybody had seen, millions of people had read. Um that's no longer the case, although I think that still everybody has heard of it. Yeah. So even if you don't know it, you know, it's still a familiar iconic kind of a reference. Definitely. Um but yeah, so for those who don't know it, it's a kind of epic romance is how most people think of it. It's an epic romance set um uh, uh during the Civil War in the deep south in Georgia, and it is the story of a of a spirited and, and scandalous Southern belle um, called Scarlett O'Hara, who in the film is played by Vivian Lee in her star-making performance. She's not the kind of stereotype of the nice Victorian angel, the blonde. Scarlett is tough as nails, and, and it's really a story about survival. Um, it's a story about how she loses everything in the Civil War. Of course, she's um, you know a slaveholder and on the losing side of the war. And it's about her battle to get everything back. And then it's also a love story. So it's about her mistaken belief that she 
she's in love with a man called Ashley Wilkes, but actually she's in love with the roguish Rhett Butler, who's the only man who really knows, you know, the real Scarlett O'Hara. And it's really their kind of their epic romance. One of the things that's that's really remarkable about the story, as I say in my book about it, and, and I don't want to spoil it for those who don't know, but one of the most famous things about Gone with the Wind is that it's a it's a romance that ends unhappily. Um, Scarlett and Rhett do not live happily ever after. It ends with Rhett walking out on her. And that's where the very famous line, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, comes from. She says, Rhett, if you leave me, what shall I do? Where shall I go? And he says, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, and, and walks out the door and out of the story. Yeah. So what you've described there is this sort of dramatic, empowering, almost sort of proto-feminist story. But of course, there's a whole huge, you know, we can't even call it an elephant. It's a blue whale in this room, <laughs> which is the story of slavery, of racism. And it's a story which is there in, in the history and the Civil War and so on. But of course, it's also there in, in the making of the movie, isn't it? Absolutely. And in, and it's front and center in the story. I mean, one of the central points that I want to make in the book is that when we talk about Gone with the Wind, as you say, we talk about it as if it's a proto-feminist story and people, people identify with Scarlet because she's resilient and she's this survivor. But it is fundamentally a story about slaveholders that pretends that slavery wasn't a problem. It pretends that slavery doesn't matter. And it pretends that their wealth was sort of disconnected from slavery. And what I say is that that's kind of emblematic of the way that American uh, popular memory has treated its own version of American slavery that to kind of shrug it off and just say, well, we can tell a story about American history that doesn't involve slavery. We can tell a story about the American Civil War that doesn't involve slavery. The Civil War was fought over slavery. You know, right. That's what it was about. It's like saying we could talk about the Second World War without talking about fascism. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But we do it all the time. And so um, so that's really, you know, the kind of, um, as I say, the kind of central point that I want to make here is that, as you say, there's this massive black whale at the heart of the story that it doesn't want to see. Yeah. And at risk of, of moving far too quickly, but of course, you know, people must read your book and then they can do it at their own pace. But that sort of takes us forward into the postbellum South and this idea of the lost cause. For those who are not familiar with that, what does that mean, the lost cause? Yeah. So the, you know, the, the other way I could have described Gone with the Wind, um, it may sound like I'm digressing, but as an answer to the question of, of the lost cause, is that it's this romanticized view of antebellum slavery that said um, that it was a benevolent paternalistic system in which the slaveholders were gentle and kind and benevolent, and that it was a, a romantic and noble era, and that the South went to war for a noble cause, which was to protect this gentle way of life from Yankee and federal aggression. And they and they still will in the South sometimes refer to the Civil War as the war of northern aggression. And um, and that that was unjust and that this uh that this small, dauntless little band of, of rebels came together to protect their independence. They kind of invoke the revolutionary spirit there of, of America and, and the, the Civil War leaders absolutely did, the Confederate leaders absolutely did that at the time. So so this idea that it's the spirit of of independence and and that they are the victims really in the story and that became known as the lost cause version of the Civil War. It was a propaganda campaign. It was a version of revisionist history that instantly began when the war, when they lost to save face, but to insist that what they had done was right. The war was a noble cause, but it was a lost cause. It was always a romantic lost cause, but good for them for trying. Instead of admitting the truth, which is that they went to war aggressively to protect and expand 
slavery across the United States. So this propaganda campaign, still this misinformation campaign that's known as the lost cause, still has infiltrated American history to an absolutely extraordinary degree and American popular memory. And so that's really central to understanding how a story like Gone with the Wind, which was written in the 1930s, was entirely shaped by the worldview of the lost cause and took that uh, for granted. Gone with the Wind does, does reject the idea that war is romantic. That's where it's more modern. One of its more redeemable aspects is that it's a story about the civilian costs of war. It's about what happens to women during war. And it doesn't romanticize battle itself, but it does romanticize slavery. And that's at the heart of the Lost Cause legend. And that Lost Cause legend, of course, persists right into the modern day. And as you will know much better than I do, the it is not that long ago, for example, that the Confederate flag would hung, hang outside the State House, I think in South Carolina. They just took it down right. <laughs> I mean, a couple of years ago, right? The Confederate flag is as much of a contested symbol as the statues of, of Confederate leaders and white supremacists are, um, the, which is probably, you know, a, a more familiar story to non-American. Um, and so these these debates are, are still very live and they're very, very analogous to the debates that are happening, for example, in Britain around taking down the statues of enslavers or people who benefited from the slave trade. So it's a very, very uh, similar parallel. My book begins with the fact that the Confederate flag was was flown during the insurrection last year. And that's a really important part of this story is that insurrectionary, specifically white supremacist flag um, was carried in the US Capitol for the first time last year. And it's exactly what the Civil War was fought to stop from happening. And the North won. And then 160 years later, the symbol of the losing side was paraded through the through American government. And that and it's really the story of how we got there that we need to understand. Yeah. And on the way, we pass through some very dark chapters. And I suppose an aspect of this lost cause is the way in which, having lost the war, the white elite in the South made sure that they won the politics, by which I mean, you know, they excluded African-Americans from, uh, you know, any kind of electoral power. But also you, you actually had the Ku Klux Klan and the lynchings and, and effectively mass murders uh, in order to sort of extreme suppression of that population. So this is this is all part of that sort of long tail of this this kind of long uh, lost cause trauma, isn't it? Absolutely. It was about maintaining the structures of slavery, even if slavery itself was outlawed. So they created these kinds of proxy structures that kind of perpetuated the inequalities of slavery. And so that, you know, included, as you say, the, the violence of the Klan and other white supremacist groups, what became known um, idiomatically as lynching, but People have this idea that lynching means, you know, that somebody was taken into the woods and furtively hanged in the dark of night by a small band. And sometimes that happened, but sometimes um, and often more often it was public acts of torture, uh, of extreme torture. And I, as you say, it is a brutal story that I have to tell here because I think we need to understand how extreme those acts of violence 
were and that the violence wasn't random. It was directed as they testified at the time. And they said outright, they were absolutely, because they were unapologetic white supremacists. They stood up and said over and over again, we're doing this because black people are not equal, the equals of white people. They should not be voting. They should not be in government. And we are prepared to kill them to stop this from happening. And they said that in so many words. So it's not an act of historical interpretation to say they were, they were trying to suppress the black vote as if I had to kind of connect the dots, they stood up and said it. Um, and, and then they, they also passed a, a raft of laws that would, um, that would effectively disenfranchise um, Black Americans when they weren't allowed to do it directly, they would just do it indirectly. So that's where things like the idea of the people will know the phrase, the grandfather clause or, or grandfathered rights or grandfathered voting, but may not know that this is where it comes from. But one of the very common laws in the, in the post-Civil War South was that you could only vote if your ancestor had voted. This takes us to uh, the modern era. And of course, we see analogous, perhaps, but, but certainly different activities happening. The sort of extremes of voter suppression, which appear targeted in southern states at um, African-American communities. Um, is what is happening now with the kind of um, the, the MAGA right, is this the same thing or is, is this some new... Uh, kind of uh, distortion. It's an iteration of the same thing. It's not identical, but it is something that is spiraling through our history, and it's the same impulse. Yes, the the thing that we have to bear in mind about the the so-called MAGA movement or or Trumpism is that it is absolutely, in my view, certainly, um, and I think pretty provably, not a coincidence that it was the response to the election of the first African American president. It is a backlash movement. And I think the long view of history will make that very, very clear. Um, as I say, I think it's, all, it's already pretty clear. The, the issue is that, is that people may or may not be motivated personally by racism. And that is the thing I think that often clouds the issue. So you say, well, these people aren't, they aren't themselves racist, whatever that means. Um, well, in, in some way, often they are actually, yeah. and 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 I give lots of examples of that in the book, where where they they actually under duress will blurt out um, what they actually think, and that tends to be pretty racist a lot of the time. Um, but it's also the case that this is this is really a story about structural racism, right? It's about a society that organized itself around racism, and so you don't have to personally be motivated by racism to continue to fight to uphold a structure that. That benefits you over another group. What I would say is that is I would sort of flip the the way that you framed it on its head and say that the story of America that I'm telling here is a story of a country that has never been a multiracial democracy. And until you understand that, you don't understand. Well, you certainly don't understand United States history, but you don't understand what's happening now if you don't understand that. If you think that we ever were a multiracial democracy and now we're having some weird sort of spasm where we're ceasing to be a multiracial democracy, um, you're, you're misunderstanding the, the whole course of American history. We have never achieved a multiracial democracy. And the, the, the history we were talking about a moment ago of the white South after the Civil War is exactly the point. So they actively disbarred Black people from um, full participation in government, in society. And then that spread up through the North. So this is not a story about blaming the South. This is about how the United States as a society embraced these structures. And what happened was that we were inching closer to a multiracial democracy. We were, we were fighting our way 
toward it. And there were major landmarks along the way, the civil rights movement, which led to Lyndon B. Johnson's um, civil rights reforms in 1965, particularly the Voting Rights Act, which, which made voter suppression illegal for the first time in any consistent way in any enforceable way. And then we were, it was getting better and it was getting better. And then you have the, you know, Obama presidency made a lot of people think that, that we'd arrived, that we'd achieved it. And, and that was the mistake. And, um, and then of course, during the, um, during the Obama administration, the, the extreme right wing Supreme court reversed the voting rights act. They rolled it back and they literally said, um, we don't need it anymore because full voting rights and full multiracial democracy has been achieved. Well, it demonstrably hasn't been, but now we don't have the laws to protect it. So that's why you're seeing this raft of it now, because the law just changed in 2013. Yeah. So the basic sort of conflict here uh, appears to be one of, of you know, Americans of, of European heritage and uh, formerly enslaved Americans of African heritage. But we haven't really touched on, on the sort of Latino community. And it seems uh, important because if, if I'm not uh, wrong that that community is increasingly turning to the sort of conservative politics. How does that sort of affect this thesis, or does it not? Well, it does. I mean, what I'm saying is, I say it's a kind of iterative view of of American history, right? Which, so as I say, it's not that we're looking at something that's identical to what was happening in the 1930s, and certainly not identical to what was happening in the 1860s. For starters, women have voting rights, you know. So I mean, things have changed um, uh, considerably, right? And that changes the picture. But what I would say to that is that that aspect of the story, to me, is more about conservative patriarchy. And we have we talked about feminism at the beginning, and then it kind of dropped out of the conversation. But the 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 minority. Um, MAGA movement that you're talking about um, is epitomized by the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, you know, um, judicially epitomized. So that is, so Christian evangelicalism is central to this um, movement. It's a, it's a white Christian nationalist patriarchal movement. And that means that communities that are very Catholic, very conservatively Catholic, and very, very patriarchal are going to find common cause with this politics. They're going to see that it represents their their value system. And then the key thing here for a great many Latino voters is that in America is that a lot of them, uh, particularly Cubans um, in Florida, for example, left a communist regime. And so they are fiercely anti-communist and they and they accept the right wing characterization of Biden and the Democrats agenda as a socialist or communist agenda, um, oppositional statement. Now, anyone outside of the United States, you know, thinks that Biden and the Democrats are pretty right of center, as yeah. a matter of fact. <laughs> um, but in America, they're painted as socialist. And so that is a message that very clearly resonates with a lot of uh, Latino American voters. Having said that, when you say it looks like, you know, Latin voters are, are moving more and more to the MAGA camp. Um, and again, as I said, this is about patriarchy to a certain extent. It is, we're talking here about Latin men. Yeah. Um, and actually, and, and with, you know, with Af their African-American men who also uh, have voted for Trump, African-American women overwhelmingly do not, for example. So we have to keep segmenting the story that we want to tell and, the, and any temptation to generalize certainly does break down pretty quickly. But you can still continue to make sense of the story along these broad axes. Finally, Sarah, I'd like to look forward to the future and the upcoming electoral cycle. Following the trajectory of your writing and our discussion today, it's not hard to posit that this leads us to the figure of Donald Trump himself. 
How has this era affected the American story you write about? One question you could ask, for example, is, is this a dangerous moment for democracy itself? What I've learned from all of this is I was certainly um, guilty of thinking when I was younger and before uh, Trumpism came along to disturb all of our complacency um, of thinking that democracy had kind of been achieved in America and um, and it hasn't been. And so now I've learned that that isn't, that isn't the case. I don't think it ever will be. I think it's a process that we have to keep fighting for. And I think we have to teach that. I think we have to make clear that that's what democracy is. It's a process that you have to continue to struggle to maintain because this isn't going to go anywhere. Um, and, and what we've seen is that is that what had been a kind of underground movement what happens to it when it gets empowered um, and when it proliferates. Um, it's now, you know, kind of a third of the country. People say half the country. It's not really half the country. But it is about a third of voting age Americans seem to support this. And and that's a vast number of people. And that's deeply, deeply worrying. And that's not going to go anywhere. You're not going to suddenly convince them to be, you know, champions of liberal democracy overnight. That's not going to happen. So we have a big fight on our hands. We're in an awful lot of trouble. Um, we can't take any of this for granted. And I'm in, I'm in real doubt about the outcome. Um, although right now, I think the signs are pretty good for the midterms, but um, there's a long way to go. Well, on that sobering note, I think we have to, Sorry. well, we have to be reminded that- <laughs> I'm like the voice of doom these days. <laughs> well, it, it's, I think it certainly makes the case that people should be reading, reading your brilliant book. So that's Sarah Churchwell's book, The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells, published by Head of Zeus, uh, I can't recommend it too highly. And Sarah, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you very much indeed. Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays, the Culture Bunker on Saturdays and Bunker Gold on Fridays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also support our work on the crowdfunding platform Patreon just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. The Bunker was presented by Arthur Snell, as audio production from me, Robin Lee. The Bunker is produced by Yelena Sofronovich and Jacob Archbold. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. And lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.